So we've spent the last month in this series called Holy Bible Question Mark. We've been asking some important questions about the scripture. Uh, We started with, is it actually the word of God? And then if it is the word of God, how did a copy end up in my hands? Last week we asked, how do I read it so that I get the meaning that God is intending for me? And today our question is, if I follow it, what happens? If I do what God told Joshua in Joshua chapter one, to obey all that I have commanded you, what will my life look like? Uh, will it end up looking like these guys, um, the shakers? I'm sure most of you are hoping that it does, especially you ladies. I, I do want to say nobody in this picture looks happy. They're there. They are not happy to be there. Uh, The Shakers were a group in the late 1700s to the mid 1800s who read the Bible not too differently than you and I do. Asking this question, if we follow all of this, what happens? They concluded that the only way they could follow all of it is if they moved out away from society and formed their own communities. When I was growing up in southwest Missouri as a teenager, uh, there were two ways that you declared your commitment to Jesus. Uh, First was through Christian t-shirts. It usually took something real and made it a spiritual pun. The second way that you declared your faith in Christ was uh, by the kind of music that you listened to. If you were really committed to Jesus, then you only listened to Jesus-styled Music. I remember I was in middle school and my musical taste was beginning to develop and we were in Best Buy with my mom. I begged her to buy me uh, a Guns N' Roses CD. In fact, this Guns N' Roses CD. Uh, which you have to admit is pretty bold to just say to your mom, I want you to buy this for me. Don't mind the parental advisory sticker on the front. Just buy it to me, buy it for me. Uh, she didn't have any of it and I left the store without the CD in my hands. Uh, but thankfully... Uh, somebody invented a BMG Music Club or Columbia House, and, and I learned that I could actually get around my parents in order to get the music that I want just by sending one uh, penny uh, in the mail. They would give me 10 CDs for free, and so I was able to make sure that I had all the Dr. Dre music that I wanted, Tupac, uh, Rex and Effects, uh, all the other things that I was listening to at the time. But then when my faith began to develop, Uh, That music had to go because there were two ways that you declared your commitment to Jesus at my church. First was through Christian t-shirts and then through the music that you listen to. So we're asking this question, if we follow the scripture, what happens? I mean, is that the kind of thing that we're talking about? Are those our two options? We either move away and form some biblical community or, or we just pick a few surface level changes here and there. What I want you to remember when you leave today is that if we follow the word of God, it will lead us away from the world, but it will also lead us toward the world. If you obey all that God has commanded, it will lead you away from the world, but it will also lead you toward the world. This is what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, starting in verse 14. He's praying for his disciples. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of this world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Verse 14, as a reminder, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And he repeats this idea in verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So when, we ask, when we're asking the question and talking about moving away from the world, what do we mean? Well, here's what we learn. We learn that Jesus is not of this world. He's not of this world in his existence. John starts his gospel declaring Jesus as the word. That was a title that he gave for Jesus. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus didn't have a beginning like you and I have a beginning. He's different than us in that way. Then he was born of the Virgin Mary. He had a different existence than we do. He's also different from the world in motivation. He consistently has conflict with the Pharisees because their primary motivation, according to him, is the approval of man. The tax collectors that he interacted with, their motivation was money. Even his own disciples, their motivation was rank. They argued about who was the greatest. He's different in existence. He's different in motivation. He's different in practice. He had a high regard for purity. Jesus is the one who said, be holy as God is holy. A high regard for purity and also a high regard for mercy, which is unusual. Usually lean towards one or the other. You regard mercy or you regard holiness. But Jesus held both and he was different in his practice. And he says that because he is different than the world, then we are going to be different from the world. We're not of the world. Then the same way, we're different in existence. Jesus said in John chapter three, you're born one time from your mother, but you have to be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Paul says to the Corinthians that they are a new creation in Christ. You and I are different in our existence. We have a different beginning from the rest of the world. That's why the scripture would encourage you if you're single, not to marry an unbeliever. Why? Because you're a better person? Because you're more moral? That's not necessarily true. But because you're different on the inside. You have a new beginning. You are a new creation. You've been born once. They've been born once. You were born a second time into the kingdom of God. That's why Paul says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? We have a different existence than the rest of the world. We should also have different motivations. We should take on Jesus' motivations. We shouldn't be motivated by rank like the disciples. We shouldn't be motivated by money like the tax collectors. We shouldn't be motivated by the approval of other people like the Pharisees. And we take on his practices, which makes us different from the world. That's what it means to be a disciple. We know that the basic definition of a disciple means to be a student. But when we hear the word student, we hear lecture. We learn from lectures. Someone stands up in front, they speak, we learn. Essentially what we're doing right now. But when I was in Miss Darnaby's class in first grade, I was learning math and reading, but I wasn't learning how she organized her desk. When I was in Mr. Sumner's class in the sixth grade, I was learning about social sciences and history, but I wasn't learning about the way that he packed his lunch in the morning. A disciple is much more than just learning from lectures. The, the original disciples, they were trying to imitate everything that Jesus did. So of course they're taking in the lessons, 
but they're also watching the way that he interacted with people and imitating that. They're watching the way that he prayed and imitating that. They're watching the way that he healed and imitating that. That's what it means to be a disciple. So because Jesus is different in his practice from the rest of the world, we want to imitate him and be different ourselves. And Jesus says, because of that, the world's gonna hate us. It hated him. We follow him. We believe in him. It's gonna hate us. There are places around the world that that's obvious. Saudi Arabia, China, parts of Russia, parts of Colombia, parts of Mexico, Iran, Iraq. There, there are places around the world that we know that there's hatred for believers. Here, it's more subtle. Here, it's a disdain. People sometimes talk about Christians with disdain in their tone of voice. Many of us are afraid to bring up in our vocations that we're followers of Jesus because people automatically assume that we're not intelligent, uh, that we're not sophisticated, uh, that somehow we are just, uh, just simple people and have gravitated towards giving our lives to Christ. Right? You, can, you can feel that occasionally. But there are also moments where it seems like the world is with us and supporting us. I mean, it was only 20 uh, years ago that everyone in America wore a bracelet like this, WWJD. Uh, this was the first thing to go viral. This is pre-internet. Uh, a little more than 20 years ago, right now, Allen Iverson, an NBA player, was playing in the NBA Finals wearing one of these. Everyone had one. And if you paused America right in that moment, you would say, America loves the church. There's not a big difference between America and Christians. Kind of everybody has a respect for Jesus. Everybody wants to do what Jesus would do. But what Jesus himself is telling us is that the baseline, the thing that the world will always return to, is that it hates us because it doesn't understand us, because it's not like us, because it's not like Jesus. And he's praying this for the disciples. Now, he says that he wants this to happen more and more and more. The unfortunate byproduct is that the world may hate us more and more and more, but he wants us to become more and more like him. That's what he says in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He uses the word consecrate later on for himself. Uh, consecrate, sanctify, holy. Um, these are words that originally come from God. These are words that we use to describe God. He's holy. He's other. He's distinct. There's no one like him. There's no metaphor that is appropriate. He's in a category all himself. So Jesus is saying, I want you, Father, to sanctify my disciples. I want you to set them more and more apart. I want you to make them more and more holy. I want you to, to make them more and more a category by themselves, different from the rest of the world. So if you made a commitment on June 1st to read through the entire Bible for one year, so that by June 1st, 2018, you were finishing. When you close the last page of Revelation next year, if you read it with an open heart and mind filled with faith, you would be less and less like the world. You would be more and more in a category of your own. But you would find yourself moving toward the world as well. That's what he says in verse 15. 
I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So he's not asking his, for his disciples to leave with him, which is relevant. As Jesus is praying this, his arrest is looming, which will be followed by his death on the cross. Three days later, he'll be resurrected from the dead. 40 days later, he'll ascend into heaven. He is going back to the Father, and he's praying a point here that he's not asking that the disciples go with him on that moment. When he gathers them on that hill and ascends up into heaven, he's saying to his disciples, you're not going with me. He promised to return, but he's saying, I'm, I'm leaving you here. I think most of us fall into one of two categories. We either never think about Jesus' return, it's probably most of us. Let me just ask yourself this week, did I think about one time that Jesus is going to return physically here to earth? I mean, probably most of us didn't. So we're either in that category or we're in this other category where we think about it all the time and talk about it all the time and tweet about it all the time and write books about it all the time. Jesus is returning. We're holding signs out on the street. Jesus is coming back. You better get ready. Right? And those people are a little bit different birds. It's kind of different birds. We appreciate them. They play an important role in society, but they're a little bit different. And those people always have a rescue me rhetoric. Right? They look out and they say, gosh, this is so awful. This world is so terrible. It's just, look at all that's going around. And then their prayer is, God, take us out of here. Right? Rescue me. It's like the prophet Jonah. God said to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to preach to them repentance so they might change their hearts. And if they don't, then I'm gonna destroy their city. Well, here's a little secret. Jonah didn't like the people of Nineveh. He thought they were awful. He did not think that they were worth saving. I don't know if there's a people group or type of person that you would be honest and admit that, that this kind of person, they'd be better if they were just wiped off the earth. That's how Jonah felt about the people of Nineveh. So he ran. He didn't want to go and proclaim repentance so they might be able to change. So he ran away from God's call on his life. Eventually, the giant fish comes and eats him up and spits him back in the direction he should go. He does go to Nineveh and he does proclaim repentance. And they repent. The top, the king, is broken. Takes off all of his kingly robes and attire. Puts on sackcloth. The king sets in ashes. No one eats or drinks. As a sign to God, we really are broken about what we've done. Jonah's response, he's mad. And he leaves the city of Nineveh and he goes out and he takes a seat where he could see the city. And here's his prayer. God, I hope you destroy them. He didn't care that they had repented. He didn't care that they had changed. He just sat out there and wait for fire to rain down from the sky to watch a people be consumed. God doesn't do that. Some good things happen to Jonah while he's out there waiting. Some bad things happen. And his book Named after him in the Bible ends like this. Jonah says, I wish I would die. I am so frustrated by life. The fact that you didn't wipe out these people. The fact that I had some shade and then my shade went away. I'm, I look out there and I don't like what's going on. I wish this would just be over. You hear Christians talking about that too. God, just rescue us. Just get us out of here. Just come and you fix all of this. Climate change has been in the news. I don't know if you've noticed that. <laughs> there was a politician this week uh, who said, uh, God will work it out. 
That's rescue me rhetoric. So God will handle that. So I bear no responsibility. That's the problem with rescue me rhetoric is it lets us off the hook. We don't have to do anything. God will do it. God will fix it. God will fix poverty. God will fix racial injustice. God will fix homelessness. God will fix all that. I bear no responsibility. But Jesus says, I'm not taking my disciples with me. I'm leaving them here and giving them responsibility. We'll find ourselves moving away from the world in sanctification, but we'll also find ourselves moving toward the world because Jesus has given us responsibility. Now look what he does pray. He prays that they would be kept from Satan. God has given Satan a measure of authority here on this earth. The scripture calls him the God of this age. It calls Satan the ruler of this world, the prince of the power of the air. How is Satan at work in our world? Three primary ways. First, he's trying to counterfeit God. The Old Testament gives us a peek about how Satan became Satan. He was an angel worshiping God, but he decided that he would rather be worshiped than worship. And God cast him out of heaven. And so now he works to steal worship from God. So if you and I worshiped anything else today, this week besides God, Satan won victory. He's counterfeiting God. He's trying to imitate everything that God does, trying to set himself up in that place trying to distract you and I from the most meaningful thing that we can do, which is to live our lives in worship towards God. He's also trying to undermine believers. He's working so that you and I would be tempted. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says that Satan seduced Eve into eating that fruit in the Garden of Eden. He lured her away. He dangled some fruit in front of her. All of us experienced that this week some temptation that Satan dangled in front of us so that we might eat and be trapped by our own decisions. He wants to partner with you in trapping you. He doesn't want to do it himself. He just wants to dangle some fruit so that you and I might do what we want to do in that moment and be hurt by it. He wants to undermine believers and he works for destruction. Jesus said about Satan, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. You know, there are people out there who worship Satan. That's what they call themselves. They call themselves Satanists. And uh, you would think that he would have some allegiance to those who have taken on his name. The reality is he doesn't. He wants you to be destroyed as a Jesus follower. He wants his own followers to be destroyed. He wants to burn it all down. That's his goal constantly. So when he does look out on the world and see it burning on fire, falling apart, he thinks I am accomplishing my plan because he's working for destruction. And Jesus says, I'm leaving my disciples here, but I'm praying that they'd be kept from Satan. But it's more than he's just leaving us here. He's sending us here. That's what it says in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. So Jesus becomes a model for us. He says, I was sent here. You were sent here. Follow me. So how did Jesus live in this world? Well, first he proclaimed the kingdom of God. That's what he was always saying. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is on your doorstep. He taught about the kingdom. That's what the parables are about. 
That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. That's what the Beatitudes tucked into the Sermon on the Mount are about. Here are the rules of this new kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming. He embodied the kingdom. He moved in the power of God. He healed. He taught with authority. He raised the dead. He offered forgiveness. He embodied the kingdom. Uh, You do that really well here at Bayou City. The number one thing that people say about our church when they come as a guest is uh, there's something about it that's different. Uh, They don't really know what to say. They don't know how to put words on it. They just say something about it's different. Worship is really great. Sermon's really mediocre. But the the people... (laughs) The people, uh, there's something about the people. And what they don't have the words to articulate is that you embody the kingdom of God. You are embodying it when you're moving out there in the world, when you're on your way to work, when you're with your friends, when you're in your apartments, you're living out the kingdom. And there's something special when we gather together on Sunday morning, having embodied the kingdom all week long. It becomes more than the sum of its parts. It's more than the sermon. It's more than the worship. It's more than the gathering. Something holy comes. It feels like the kingdom. Jesus embodied that. We should too. And he invited people in. He invited the unrighteous. He invited the self-righteous. A couple in our church, last fall they wanted to have a Bible study in their home. So they picked one called Experiencing God and they, they just invited a few people that were their friends. But there was one couple that was on their heart in a real unique way. Uh, the wife was a believer, follower of Jesus. The husband was not. It wasn't that he was against it. It just, just wasn't his thing, you know. But I said, we're gonna invite him anyway. And so they really started putting pressure on the husband, you know, not in like a weird way, but then like, a, hey, we're gonna eat together. It's gonna be a great time. You should really, really come. And so he said, okay, we'll, we'll come. And so every week they're showing up to do a Bible study called Experiencing God. They would, they would do the Bible study. They would eat together. And every week when he would leave, the husband and wife would get together and they would be like, what, what do you think? What, what's he thinking? Does he think like we're wacko? Does he like, is, he, is God working in his life? What's he thinking? Towards the end of the Bible study session, he showed up at their house and he said, I just want to let you know this weekend I gave my life to Christ. I don't want to make a big deal about it, but I just want you to know that that happened. Because they invited him in. That's what Jesus did. He just, just invited people in. He told them about it. He taught them about it. He lived it. And, and then he just said, follow me. If we do those first three things, that's all we have to say to people. Just, just follow me. Say, just come along with me. You'll see for yourself. He says, I'm leaving you here. I pray that you be kept from the enemy, but I'm sending you into the world. If you went into my closet, you would see a pretty good collection of hats. And uh, each of my hats represents a different part of my personality you should really consider going to a different church. So like this snapback flat bill is the part of me that wants to be on trend. I don't know if I can pull it off, but there's a part of me that wishes that I could. And so when I feel like that, I grab that hat. This is a terribly uncool hat from an event that I was a part of in Missouri where I grew up. And when I look at it, I remember the part of me that comes from a pretty simple place. And when I feel 
in that mood, I reach for that hat. This was a hat that I bought recently that Amanda does not like, so I do not wear it. Um, that is like, I'm, not, I'm too old and have too many kids to be on trend, so maybe I should just lean into the dad hat. I don't ever wear this, though. I bought it, and then I don't ever wear it. But each of my hats, I got a quirky beach hat that I can reach for. And we use that vernacular all the time. Well, when I put on this hat, I see it from this perspective. And when I put on this hat, I see it from that perspective. When I, when I, when I put on my business hat, I see the numbers. But when I put on my friend hat, I see why maybe it's more than the numbers. When I put on my dad hat, I see it from this perspective. But when I put on my son hat, I see it from this perspective. Jesus, when he was talking about our commitment to him, he said that no one who puts their hand on the plow should take it off. And if you take your hand off the plow, then you're not fit to be a disciple. What he meant was this, if you've arrived at a place where you would say, I believe in Jesus as the son of God. I believe in him for my eternal life. And I believe that the best use of my life is to follow him in every single way. Jesus would tell us, hold on, count the cost, because once you're in, you need to be all the way in. There's not, I'm in, and then I got distracted, and I'm out. Or I'm in, and life is busy, and now I'm out. Uh, I'm in, but I had kids, and so I'm out. There's There's none of this. He would say, once you put on your kingdom hat, you just leave it on. There are no other hats. But that's hard. That's hard. It's hard with simple stuff like uh, Thursday morning or Friday morning, you may show up at work and you've got your kingdom hat on. You're thinking with kingdom perspective, but then you realize, hey, people are going out after work or everybody's getting together on Friday or everybody's getting together on Saturday and they're going to drink. And I don't mean they're going to like have a drink. I mean, they're going to drink. But when you got your kingdom hat on, you remember what the scripture says that, no, we shouldn't get drunk, but we should be filled with the spirit. No, I shouldn't turn to alcohol to meet some emotional need in me. That in Christ's presence, in God's presence, Psalm 19, is fullness of joy. When you got your kingdom hat on, that makes sense. But when you put your friend hat on, now you see it from a different perspective. When you put the I still want approval hat on, you see it from a different perspective. Sexual ethics are up for grabs in our culture. You can just do whatever you want. You'll find somebody who would support you in that. But when you have your kingdom hat on, you remember that God says, I bless sex. I created it. And not just for biology, but for intimacy. But according to Ephesians, he's placed it in a marriage between a husband and a wife. But then when you take that hat off and you put on your, yeah, but I'm single and I'm older than I wish that I was. And I'm a little bit lonely and it's 2017, when I put that hat on, I see it from a different perspective. People do this with politics. People do it with parenting. People do it with money. When I got my kingdom hat on, I see it this way. And when I put another hat on, I see it in a different way. And what Jesus would tell us today is, hey, you're not like the world. You just have one hat, and that's the kingdom hat. And you live with a kingdom perspective, and you don't ever take it off. You don't ever let go 
of the plow, once you've put your hand on the plow, once you've decided to follow Jesus, you follow Jesus. And he would tell us that when you're thinking with that kingdom perspective, you are at your most influential in this world. You are at your most winsome and enticing as you proclaim the kingdom and teach about the kingdom and embody the kingdom and invite people in. That's you at your most influential. When you take your kingdom hat, you're just a regular person. There's something powerful about you when you live like Jesus did in this world. If we follow the word of God, it's not about moving away, forming a community. It's not about a few surface changes to let everybody know. If you follow the scripture, you'll find yourself moving away from the world in what you're like, but moving toward the world in who you love. You'll be fully holy and fully present. Let's pray. Why don't you take a second in the spirit of prayer, just ask God directly yourself. God, what is it that you want me to remember about your word today? What is it that you want me to put into practice? Father, we thank you that you can speak to each of your children uniquely and specifically. We pray that we would follow through with the things that you've asked us to do today. We beg you by the power of your spirit that we would be doers of your word and not hearers only. So that we might be different and that Houston might be better. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.